James Bond's loyalty to M is tested as her past comes back to haunt her and Bond's own doubts about his life and livelihood start to creep in. As MI6 comes under attack and Bond is sent to Shanghai to investigate, he must keep his focus on tracking down and destroying the threat no matter how high the personal cost. Making its premiere in London on the 23rd of October 2012 before opening in the UK three days later on the 26th and a whole two weeks later in the USA on the 9th of November, Skyfall is the 23rd James Bond film and cost $200 to make and it brought in a record $1.1 billion at the worldwide box office. Starring Daniel Craig, directed by Sam Mendes, the vital statistics are Conquest 2, Martinis 1, Kill 17, Bond, Mm. James Bonds 1. Back in 2012, Variety said, Putting the intelligence back in MI6, Skyfall reps a smart, savvy, and incredibly satisfying addition to the 007 canon, one that places Judy Dench's M at the center of the action. It's taken 23 films and 50 years to get Bond's backstory, but the wait was worth it. In Sam Mendes' hands, the franchise comes full circle, revealing the three-film Daniel Craig cycle to be both prelude and coda to the entire series via a foxy chess move that puts these pieces on par with Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy as best-case examples of what cinematic brands can achieve, resulting in a recipe for nothing short of world domination. So to talk about Skyfall, I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Williams, Dr. Lisa Funnel, and Tom Butler. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hi there, uh, I'm Ben Williams. I write for mi6hq.com and mi6 Confidential Magazine. Uh, hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm an associate dean, award-winning author, and media educator, specializing in gender in James Bond and other action films. I'm Tom Butler. I'm a movie journalist, and I do the James Bond A to Z podcast also. Fantastic. So we normally kick these one uh, these off with the one with. Um, What's the single motif you could hang your hat on for this film? If you could imagine the poster, what would you put on it? How would you describe this film to a casual moviegoer? Um, maybe somebody that hasn't had ITV4. Um, <laughs> Skyfall is the one with... Oh, I'll, I'll go first then. Um, I'm going to say this is the one, this is the prestige James Bond film. Um, I feel like this is the first time we've got a Bond film where um, the the they've really gone all out to make a prestige picture uh, not to say that the quality of the previous bond films has been lesser but we've got Sir sam mendez um you know oscar winner director recruited got roger deakins one of the greatest cinematographers of all time um they've got adele doing the theme song They've just assembled the greatest team um, possible for the for the movie, and it's all come together in a in a uh, in a satisfying way. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I would say. It's the prestige Bond film. I I, I couldn't agree more. That's very it's it's, it's true. Uh, we had a little side bet before uh, you joined us in the recording in the green room <laughs> as to what uh, whether whether you would agree uh, with with me and with james what we both said which was uh union jacks <laughs> <laughs> so uh but i think i think i prefer the the prestige description better yeah and i i would say it it holds itself as being the from a prestige standpoint this film holds itself as being the top grossing james bond film it it mm-hmm. passed that 1 billion dollar box office so it's part of an elite class um i think that this was an interesting and fitting conclusion to 
our first real James Bond trilogy. I sort of read the first three films as, as an orphan origin story. Uh, I've, I've referred to it as a revisionist trilogy. But at the end of the day, we see Skyfall end with James Bond in many ways being fully formed, entering Mallory's office. You have the sense that he's now gone through everything he needs to go through to emerge as that cool, calm, collected cold agent uh, that we had seen in the past. And it, it ends somewhat on a triumphant note, even though there's a sense of, of mourning uh, through it. And then, of course, just even the production values, which is something I'll probably talk about later, they all factor into this being a, a high quality from a visual standpoint um, film. And so, you know, when we think about just the descriptor of prestige, it's high status reputation. It's about success. It's about influence. It's about wealth, right? And, and, and in this case, box office returns. And so there's a lot of impressive details that come with a film like Skyfall. So I think your descriptor as it being prestigious can be taken in, in many different ways, but it is an apt descriptor for the film that we saw. Yeah, and I think the fact you mentioned, you know, the billion dollar is is really important um, because I feel like, not to go on a negative straight away, but this is the one that uh, sort of changes the 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 direction and the uh, and the um, impulses at Eon slightly uh, in mm-hmm. like what we expect from a Bond film now right. because of the success that they have with Skyfall, for better or worse. It feels like it's uh, it's an experience that they're trying to replicate, or at least they have done in the previous two films. You know, very obviously with Spectre, with um, you know bringing Sam Mendes back, mm-hmm. um, and then with No Time to Die, following on you know a lot of the themes that they brought in with Skyfall. You know, the consequences, the the you know the the effects of living this life that's all comes to pass in in then in no time to die and it all begins with skyfall but i think it's probably really important to sort of look at this film in isolation right. rather than judging it on what came next well, but at yeah. the same time you i think you're right though like when i think about specter uh specter duplicates some of the themes but it also duplicates some of the plot I mean, you go with this fraternal struggle for a parental figure, and that's something that's replicated in the origin story of Blofeld in the next film. Like, there really is a lot of replication in this this desire to um, remake the success of Skyfall instead of, say, building on it or building out on it in different ways. And I think that Casino Royale really set the bar and the tone for the direction that Quantum of Solace went in. And I feel as though this film really set the tone for the last two films and and trying to reach that, that carrot or um, right. whatever mark. And that meant investing boatloads of money um, into both of these films. And the question is, did they meet or match or meet or match that sort of profitability standard. And if they didn't, then it really raises questions as to whether or not sort of the Skyfall model of Bond production, which was successful in 2012 for a variety of reasons, including the Jubilee, is Mm. that something that's really sustainable in the long run? I was just going to bring that up, actually, Lisa. I think that's a really good, good point, which is that you can't take this film just the model of the film uh, and replicate it without taking into consideration the zeitgeist at the time, what was happening in 2012. You know, we had the Olympics, um, we had the, the, the Jubilee. Um, we, 
we had Andy Murray winning tennis. You know, there was uh, the Wimbledon <laughs> or whatever it was. And I, <laughs> I think there was just this combination of all of this very kind of pro-Britannia stuff. You know, you couldn't you couldn't move for bunting in the UK. It was just, <laughs> it was like you'd walk out of your house and you'd just become entangled with Union Jack bunting. And by the time you got <laughs> to the shops, it was just streaming behind you. Um, and I think that that's the, that's one of the things is that they might have tried to replicate, you know, the success of, uh, Skyfall in subsequent films, but they didn't, they didn't have the environment in which to, um, to receive it as yep. in quite the way that, you know, Skyfall did. And we were just so, we was ready for something quintessentially British, which, you know, um, Skyfall is really, and Bond is quintessentially British. And it, it sort of reminded me of how when, Go- when Gold, Goldeneye came out as well in, in the 90s, you know, where it was all um, cool Britannia as well. It sort of just fit that, that, in, that zeitgeist. And um, I think that's why we were, we were so ready for it. All right. And interesting that in '77, you know, we had Sky Love Me with uh, the Spy Love Me with the uh, the parachute jump, and um, mm-hmm. that was the Silver Jubilee at the time, wasn't it? So uh, Bond following the, uh, the fortunes of the royal family, I think, is uh, is yeah, it cannot be avoided. I think. And in terms of you know, sort of my the one with, which kind of ties into this notion of. Um, the idea of what's going on in the moment. I think that my the one with is about our current moment. Um, it's the one with Judy Dench dying. That's how I would describe Skyfall. So if you've never seen Skyfall, I'm sorry. I just gave you the end of of the film. But there's a lot going on. I've talked before about, you know, if you're going to hire Judy Dench and put her in your film, you have to give her something to do. She is a brilliant actor. Having her in this role has helped to stretch Daniel Craig as James Bond and his in his rep in his um, articulation of the character and what he can do. Right, it gave him moments to stretch. But there's a lot of connection between Judy Dench's M and the Queen in this particular film. It's something that Silva does in the images that he mm-hmm. sends yes. about. You know, saying mm-hmm. it has like the image of the queen, and then it's Judy Dench's, right? So she becomes this stand-in for the the state head um, of 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 the UK uh, and for the monarchy, right? I, Silva mm. can't get to the queen, so he might be able to get to M. There's a lot of maternal qualities placed on M in a general sense across the Craig era, but really this one with you know, as I talked before, Silva and Bond acting as sort of the surrogate sons, vying for the affections of of M, who functions um, a, a, a lot in a maternal capacity. Silva says mummy has been bad. Bond refers to her as ma'am or mum all the time. There are these overtones, right, that are taking place and Bond takes M back home to his ancestral home, right? There's a lot of notions of, of, of home uh, and these maternal co- connotations for the nation and the nation state. And so you see the death of M and the threat to M as being these motivators that are helping to grow and shape Bond. And so through that drama and through that trauma, he's able to reemerge as being fully formed. And I think that that's timely based on the recent death of the queen, a nation being in mourning and 
and and shifting to the next phase that is uncertain, right? We shifted to the Mallory phase and a lot of us were uncertain and still are a bit uncertain about that phase, right? Shifting from a woman in a position of power to a man, how might that change, say, office politics? And here we're talking about the national uh, politics. And so I think it's just a really timely conversation that we're having now about Skyfall and its positioning and, you know, its release this week. It was not planned this way. Sometimes things just line up, but it it is the one that ends on quite a somber note um, with the love of one of the loves of his life dying in his arms. And one of the things I've argued has been that the Bond girl archetype um, is about the woman that Bond loves the most in the film and, and everyone else I, right. I call sort of like a sideline figure, a sidekick figure. And, you know, you could look at Tracy Bond as being one who died in his arms. You can look at Vesper Lind as someone that he really loved, died in his arms. And both of those are being replicated in M dying in his arms because at the end of the day she is the woman that bond loves the most in skyfall and so it's a very interesting way that the film uses the bond girl as this red herring to introduce eve money penny and severine but neither of them really sort of match up to that and then we're left with bond in this notion of maternal love and its strength and and the way that it helps to form bond now am i happy that the death, uh, we have to kill off women in order to shape and form bond? No. But given the narrative that we have, it's seen as being like one of the fundamental elements that have made Bond who he is. And it's so memorable to the fact that Judy Dench appears like in a video in the next film that they're like, oh crap, we just killed off Judy Dench. Uh, she's going to come back in a video. And then the ne- the following film, we have her picture on the wall. She is somebody whose presence just looms so large that she's included in subsequent films in ways that previous actors who've played M really are not included. And so it really is a testament to the imprint that she has had across the Brosnan era going into the Daniel Craig era, being the only thread of connection between these two eras, and then just seeing this this lingering impact. So just like the the Vesper Martinis and the Vesper theme where they're looming large in Quantum of Solace, right? The, the woman that Bond loves and he can't connect with other people. You still see sort of the presence of M, who Bond also loves in the following two films. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really well, well stated. And I, and I, think it's going to be very interesting um being in the theater in the uk to see this this movie um in this climate right now um obviously i'm not in the uk at the moment but i think it would be a very different experience if you were watching the film here uh or even in your even in your homes i think the theater experience this this week is going to be um uh, an interesting kind of uh, way to kind of gauge uh, sections of, of of our kind of our, our public opinion, I suppose, and um, I, I, I suspect that the the end of the film is going to be perhaps more emotional for a lot of people than right. it might ordinarily have been. Yeah, and the idea of Bond, you know, saying going back to work you know, for his new boss, his new male yeah. boss is just going to have so much resonance now. I right. think it's either going to destroy people um, or, you know, if they're not that bothered about the whole I thing. Think, and it's, I think it's, just it's gonna... interesting that the film would be released in the Jubilee and then um, mm-hmm. re-released for this this timing, you know, and I and I think it it will have a huge, a huge resonance 
for for a new audience. Yeah, I think um, I think it it couldn't have come at a kind of a better time. And, and I think in the way in which that Skyfall did kind of also bond um, a, a country in a way, um, everybody in the UK saw it <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, loved it. And in some senses, I think maybe this will be without putting too much of a pun on it, another bonding moment mm-hmm. to, to see this film and almost have a kind of an end of era feel to it. And I think you you really highlight the idea of context, so social, political, cultural context, when something is made, um, and also when it is screened, and the importance of those contexts to the viewer. Because many people may have seen this film, as you say, during the Jubilee. It's going to hit differently at this point in time. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different because we as spectators are different. And sometimes we forget about that factor when it comes to maybe the success of a film that sometimes there are, there's, there's timing, sometimes there's external influences, but oftentimes it has to do with the state and the status of people and how they will connect. And somebody might go see this a couple more times, right? Because it's, it is that sense of collective mourning that they can have collective, still this notion of collective celebration. It might also be this notion of nostalgia, looking back at a previous a previously considered glorious time right because this is supposed to be a celebratory thing like you know bond britain and and all these other elements and yet we're not in that phase right now and so i i would be interested in hearing people's responses and i'll definitely Mm -hmm. look for it on social media to see Mm -hmm. how they're connecting with this the thing i didn't realize until we just started talking about it is um film ends with a matriarchal figure dying on a scottish estate (laughs) oh my god yeah (laughs) Yeah, yep. so the parallels are very close. Wow. Yeah. All right. Uh, bond cocktail. Um, Skyfall's an interesting one for this because um, it did reset the bar a little bit. Um, so would you like to pick one of these ingredients that you think is especially important or has a twist or somehow unique or particular f- to Skyfall and why? can be a good or a bad thing. We've got teaser titles, plot, women, villains, allies, bond, action, locations, dialogue, and if you can't think of anything else, style. Who would like to pick something from that list? Uh, may I go? Um, sure. I, I and this is taking this sort of off on a different tangent, really. But um, I, I, I really appreciated um, Javier Bardem um, as Silva in this, in this mm. film, and and what he, what he basically did to kind of create that character, um, and and give such a a big performance. And we we have seen campy big performances before that might not have been as, as quite as successful uh, because they've either they've they've kind of lent into the camp too much and the, then it becomes sort of self parody or what have you. But um, I'm sort of thinking of Jonathan Price's kind of hammy. Yeah. Charles Gray, Jonathan Price. Yeah, but but what Javier Baden does with that, it, it, you know, he's he's clearly having a lot of fun with it, but he's also making it his his it's part of his character, and I liked the fact that you know that a lot of the choices that he was making, particularly the the interrogation scene um, with Daniel Craig. Um, I'm really very pleased that they did that for a film that was going to have, uh, as, as Tom said before, you, you know, it was, it was a film that was a prestige film set up to be a, 
um, you know, a successful film. Um, and to include something that, you know, normalized and um, also kind of had a little fun with um, kind of queer identities and um, sexualities. I think it was really kind of refreshing to have that and also quite a brave choice to put it in. And I know mm. that Javier Badem, um, you know, pushed for that. And so really, uh, I think it's, it is really one of the, the most outstanding kind of villain performances that we have, certainly one of the more memorable villains we've had in a long time. And I just like what he did personally to, to make that a, a better role and a bigger role. Yeah. And it, and it was actually written for him, wasn't it? So was, wasn't it Javier Bardem in the script for a while? Yes. As, as yes. the character name. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I think he's one of the best. I, I had villain for this um, part of the, 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 the show as well, because I, I think he's just a great, he's one of the all time great villains for me. Um, you know, we've had a few sort of the sort of contrabond type uh, villains in the past, thinking sort of Scaramanga, um, Alec Trevelyan, you know, they're sort of the, the mirror image of Bond, but this is just takes it to um, another level. Yep. Um, and the way, my, in fact, my backup uh, cocktail was was the dialogue because I love the introduction Ooh. of him in the, in the room, you know, and they've got opposite costumes on. Um, he's got the... Mm-hmm. Um, the the terrifying uh, makeup hair sort of combination going on and the teeth mm. and all that sort of stuff and he's just genuinely chilling um, mm. and that dialogue in that scene just really just crackles. I think it's John Logan is is the one that's sort of credited with that that um, uh, that scene. But uh, um, I think he's great. You know, he's he is the. I think even in early scripts, wasn't he the the son of M? Um, so, we, which plays into the idea of, um, you yeah. know, the the mother figure, mm. even even more deeply. If he had gone in that direction, it would have been sort of, you know, quite a quite a, a crazy way of doing it. But um, he, the idea that he is the, the 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 bad seed gone wrong, the sort of the mm. left turn that Bond could have took, uh, is mm-hmm. is is just perfect. I think it's great. But whether his plotting and, and his in his you know his, his schemes are plausible. As the film goes on, uh, I'm not so sure. But <laughs> as a as a concept, I think he's I think he's terrific. And I think I like the. I think you're you're right when you're talking about Scaramanga, Alec uh, Trevelyan. But here, this is another great example of the possibilities of what could happen. This person who was a seemingly loyal double O agent, although there's, there's reasons for, for what happened. Um, somebody who during the handover, which by the way, in the uh, mainland Chinese release, this was not part of it. Um, who during the handover um, ended up being passed off and he tried to kill himself with the cyanide uh, tablet uh, at the back of his mouth. And that didn't happen happen. It's a very interesting origin story for a villain to be coming in and showing the other side that could happen if you've got these skills or if you're placed in a position where you are in prison, what then happens at that moment. And it makes me look back and reflect on um, Die Another Day and the fact that when James Bond was Mm, in this type of position, 
he endured torture at the beginning of Die Another Day, and he didn't give up state secrets. He didn't switch um, uh, uh, tracks when Bond was encountered uh, encountering Scaramanga, who said, "I'm I, I kill for a million dollars." Bond is not going to be swayed by money as well. So not mm. torture, not money. And then when he talks to Alec, uh, it has nothing to do with deep family roots. That Bond's loyalty seems to transcend, and that's what makes him. Um, you know, that, 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 that Royal Dalton, you know, dog, right. With that dogged determination, you know, is it old dogs, new tricks, old dogs, old tricks, um, all these other metaphors that, that come into play that are there to showcase that bond is the one and true son of, 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 of the queen of MI6, um, who's going to be loyal regardless of whatever pressure is put upon him. And it works to, through Javier Bardem's um, great performance, it's a, it's a great contrast between the two of them about the possibilities. And it helps us to appreciate what Bond does and how much he has endured because this is a film where Bond suffers. Bond is shot. Bond looks old. Bond has, you know, a beard. And with the beard, it just makes him look older, right? We see him becoming refreshed, revived. We see the faith that is put into him when he probably shouldn't have the faith of M, right? He's not really clear for field duty. And yet he still, no matter what he's going through, continues to push and push because of that 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 level of commitment and loyalty and so to see his story and the trauma he goes through which again it's it's hard to map them onto each other but both of these are suffering agents to see their differing positions um socially familiar familiar family wise couldn't think of the word for that familial et yeah. Whatever it, I'm talking about there, but it's just a very interesting. It's words. Uh, it's late, uh, but it's a very interesting dynamic because we learn about James Bond through his interactions with other people, and when you have a very strong um, character that's written and character that is performed, then that gives us a lot of um, ways to connect and do that comparative work on our own. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that like you you talk about that introduction of. Um, of silver being so uh, impactful but one of the things that i i learned was that they built the set around the dialogue and right. the amount of time it took for avia badem to walk from there <laughs> say his monologue and end it was how big the set was so they built everything around being able to deliver that dialogue so that's how important dialogue was to the filmmakers yeah. You know, to, to actually construct the world around it. And the same is true about MI6, the set from when Moneypenny collects uh, Bond and then they walk through to meet, um, you know, it's, the, it's their first meeting after she's shot him. That mm -hmm. whole dialogue is run. Um, the timing uh, created the set for that as well. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that, that says a lot about how important um, dialogue was to the filmmakers in this. And um, so I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> and can I use that as a tee up for my two points for this? Mm -hmm. Because those are things that I actually want to talk about. And I was going to do a, a double here just because I think there's a lot to talk about, but you brought them both up. First of all, the cinematography in this film is ridiculous. It is one of the most beautifully shot Bond films that I have ever seen. Mm -hmm. I remember the mm -hmm. first time I watched it, I sat back and said, you could screenshot so many images in this movie and just paper my walls with it. 
there are just so many moments where the lighting is perfect, the coloring is perfect, but it's the shot composition that is absolutely stunning. And when we talk about translating what's on the written, so the written script matters, right? Uh, But also the storyboarding and the visual stylization, the way that that was mapped out. There was a lot of attention to details, symbolism, and the way things are going to work together. Mm -hmm. And it's important when scenes are very well written. It's also important when they're performed well, of course, but also how they're shot. And this is a film that is absolutely beautiful. And I am shocked that Roger Deakins did not win an Oscar for this. And I was mad when he didn't. That leads me to point number two, when you were talking about Bond and Money Penny, I have to tip my hat to Naomi Harris and Ben Wishaw for coming in in this film. It's the film where they are finally reintroduced. So across the Daniel Craig era, we have at least I've theorized, this deconstruction of the Bond brand, this reworking of different qualities and their gradual reintroduction over time. Sometimes we get an origin story, but sometimes we just spotlight these qualities and characters, right? And this is finally the return of Moneypenny, which is sort of this aha moment, Eve at the beginning. Um, I think it's interesting that she is a field agent at the beginning. Um, Now, the fact that that field agent background is not something that is mobilized as much at the end of the film and in subsequent films, I think is a very poor missed opportunity. It's something that still makes me mad. Uh, I'm not going to lie about it. Uh, Naomi Harris is a fantastic actor. I think that there's a lot more material that, that she could really sink her teeth into. Uh, But I'm glad that we have, when it comes to James Bond's internal support system, the first black actor to play a major role in MI6, um, who's like a, a, a primary support uh, in that structure to bond, and specifically a black woman um, in that regard. We had Felix Leiter being introduced um, with Jeffrey Wright two films before. And so we are seeing some changes in the racial demographics in terms of casting. And then you have Ben Wishaw, who became a fan favorite. Naomi Harris is also beloved, but Ben Wishaw became um, a, a fan favorite. He, uh, I like the old and the new when it comes to his character and Bond mm-hmm. and their relationship, mm-hmm. whereas before it was Bond was young and Q was old and there was the grandpa-son dynamics. And here you see it's really about different eras. And I think that's something that speaks a lot to audiences, right, with the technical revolution and the difference between generations. And a lot of those differences have to do with technical divides, right? How we use digital culture um, versus doing stuff in person. Uh, I, I, this is pre-COVID <laughs> when everybody learned, right, after during COVID, right? How to, how to use stuff online. But this was this was prior to that digital turn um, based on a global pandemic. And I thought it was interesting the way that they were connected and paired up on screen. And I also like the fact that what Ben Wishaw's cue offered us was a different articulation of masculinity in a major way. It wasn't just a whole bunch of people who, in a sense, look the same way and act the same way. And Bond just happens to be maybe the most charismatic or the person who's just at the forefront. But instead, we see a different articulation of masculinity. And the film doesn't tell us which one is better. The the film allows both to coexist at the same time. Um, And I think that that's something that's important in the world of of, of Bond is to allow that it also throws some contrast on the other, right? Yes. 
and it, you again, we're comparing. It, it helps us to compare and contrast uh, Ben with 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 Daniel, right? Oh, you know, yeah. how do we understand? Q now and how do we understand James Bond in in relation? So it, it adds variety and texture when we talk about character development, the types of exchanges. Underscores that notion as well that, you know, Bond is the blunt in- instrument, not the not the refined cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ben Wishaw's Q is the refined instrument in this. He is um, you know, as he as he boasts, <laughs> you know, doing more damage than in, in his pajamas, um, mm-hmm. and I, it's really that that talks to the kind of um, idea that Bond is uh, not. I mean, he does. He's obviously he's he's intelligent, but he is more just uh, the bulldozer in the mm-hmm. <laughs> knocking down the building. Um, and I, I think that that it was important to kind of balance that. By by bringing in this, you know, Ben Wishaw's Q as a as a much more intelligent or or a different version of intelligence, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I would always, I mean, just jumping ahead, but I'd I would almost say that the reintroduction of this new sort of MI six characters is is an underappreciated element here because Absolutely. I think because they are now we we, we accepted them instantly. Um, and they've become such a cornerstone. You know, people are asking, will they come back? Will they come back? Mm-hmm. And you only have to look at the previous instances that the Bond films tried to replace right. these beloved characters to see how fraught and how difficult that process actually is. I'd say Robert Brown from, you know, uh, Bernard Lee was was almost like for like. Um, uh, and 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 Judy Dench for for Bernard Lee obviously is 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 a great example of when it's happened before. But for Money Penny and for Q, I think they've really really struggled yeah. ever to move beyond what we originally thought of of those two mm-hmm. characters, and to bring them in in such an efficient way in this movie, I think yeah. cannot be understated. Um, um, and I, I I love the way that Q is brought in in that scene, and and again the dialogue in that in that moment is sparkling. And you get echoes of it throughout in the film and also in later films as well. I, I, I only noticed this from, from watching it again the other day, but he talks about, you know, how he can cause more damage from where he is on his keyboard or whatever. And then just a few scenes later, you've got Silver saying, you know, from my keyboard, I can take down a government uh-huh. and stuff. And it's like, you know, it's the, it, it, it all plays into this theme of, you know, the, the mirror image, the, the different paths that people mm-hmm. can take. Mm. And then you've got this idea of... Um, uh, there's a there's a moment where they say Q doesn't like to fly, and then also right. he talks about being in his pajamas. And then what happens in No Time to Die? Right, he's yeah. in a plane in his pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's uh, it it all comes back. But anyway, my point is, I think that actually you're totally right, Lisa. The way that these uh, characters are brought in uh, must be uh, must be applauded. I think I think they just absolutely hit the nail on the head with them. And I would add to that. Um, one important element that you just brought up is that, you know, oftentimes Silva is compared to Bond, but it's almost like Silva and aspects of his characterization are divided between James Bond and Q, which I think is yeah. an interesting observation that I haven't fully thought about. Mm. I mean, it, um, yeah, we did kind of skip ahead to sort of underappreciated moments. Um, and I'd kind of already sort of said mine with the, with the sets, but I think it extends to um, the production design overall. Right. Dennis Gessner. I, I think it's one of the, uh, you know, Lisa says it's, it's a beautifully shot film, 
but when you also recognize that most of this stuff wasn't location, you know, no. um, they did a, a fantastic job of um, selling Shanghai um, through, you know, whether that's through through sets or or, or or through finding locations like for like and dressing them and color. Right. And yeah, just <laughs> color. And uh, you know, uh, for the for the most part, it it really sells it. And um, I think it's one of the strong strong hands of the of the film. And and the fact that they I was going to say it's almost like um, the the same situation as Goldeneye, right? Yeah, where they were restricted, they couldn't do everything on location. They had to build it from scratch and do it all again. And here we are again. It it works, I think, yeah. better. It it genuinely does. And and those, you know, I think even the kind of the, the some of the nice digital shots of placing Daniel in, you know, like the the, um, you know, the the, the drone shot in to him swimming you know, really places him in that location. And it's, it's just, a, it's very, it's very neatly done considering that, um, you know, he never went there. Right. Uh, and I also think it's a really interesting thing that so many of these Bond films would lean into a kind of a, uh, you know, a hollowed out volcano ending with, you know, all the bells and whistles and, you know, uh, jumpsuited ninjas and that they decided to go very, you know, draw draw it very in and make it very tight and small um, to be able to sell the human drama of the scene. And I think that's that was a really interesting decision. Mm. I think you know, I think a lot of the decision were maybe, like you say, the compromise that they had to make in terms of the the budget being restricted. MGM was in a very tricky spot at this time, wasn't it? And that's why the film got delayed. Um, and you said at the beginning, James, it was two hundred million dollars budget, yeah, and most of that was Sony's money, right? Right, uh, which is a fifty million less than they had for Quantum of Solace there yeah. or thereabouts, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and and so Ben, we're on the same page. I think my underappreciated element was going to be, you know, how they made the most of what they had, mm-hmm. and, and it, it's when they're backed into a corner. It's, it's so often the case, creativity comes from the best places when you're backed into yes. a corner. When you take away the the unlimited resources, they're actually able to make um, something out of nothing. And I, they really, I think they really, really do in this movie. Bear in mind, you've only got one major location shoot in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to this to someone about this the other day on, on my podcast, and. I think is it Doctor No is probably the only other James Bond film that only has one international location outside of Britain, yeah. Um, yeah. one major one major shoot, which is, you know, just shows you how much of a corner this this film got um, got put in to be made. Uh, and you mentioned the the, the casino um, sequence, which you know mm. you would believe is on a floating casino on a lake or wherever it's supposed to be, but it's just on the, it's such a beautiful set, isn't it? It's incredible. Really just a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of set design. Yeah. And then I would also back that up with Silver's Lair, you know, on the, on, on Mm -hmm. the Island, which Mm -hmm. again, you know, is based on a real place, but they didn't go there. They didn't film there. It's all on Pinewood. I was listening to the commentary. They said they got two days of sunshine in the middle of like March. And so they went outside and shot all the outside stuff when it was Mm -hmm. sunny. And then, and then all the rest was, um, yeah, just done uh, uh, indoors. But um, they really, really make the most. You see every penny up on the screen. I think. Um, oh yeah. yeah and so, do. I think it, I mean it's an appreciated element, but I think it's something that people 
don't think about when they watch the movie, perhaps, um, that uh, they should be aware of. And I think it adds a, an extra layer of, a, of appreciation for me anyway. Mm. And I think you're right. You know, this this if you think about the history of, of of filmmaking and you look at different genres that have come up or techniques that we have, usually it stems from a lack of something. So you look at German expressionism, you look at the rise of um, Nosferatu and 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 the use of of uh, shadow that came from the fact that filmmakers in Germany didn't have access to a lot of electricity after World War One, and so they were painting shadows on the set and they were learning about three point lighting, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out, and that's the reason why these are very sort of somber films. When you look at our modern editing techniques, they came from uh, the Soviet montage movement. Where did that stem from? Well, they didn't have film stock because they spent all their money and they didn't have it. So their filmmakers just started to splice things together and they learned the power of editing, uh, rapid editing, the importance of cinematography. And we came out with amazing innovations because of it. And so, you know, the, this idea that adversity is the mother of all inventions, but it really does happen when it comes to um, creative productions. And I think that one of the problems that the subsequent films had is that they just had a massive budget and they're like, what do we do with it? Rather than right. really having to make those, those smart strategic choices yeah, that like the money you're maximizing on the world's largest explosion, um, which was shot so poorly that it doesn't, it looks like it's, it's a miniature. That's how I read it. I'm like, how did you spend that much money? Right. Just yeah. because you can, but it wasn't done well, in my you opinion. Have, you could have made a, you know, an independent film for that. And, it, yep. you know, and it can't, it, you're right. You know, just, just blowing things up for the sake of blowing them up. It, mm-hmm. it has to have some kind of resonance and has to have some sort of meaning to it and i feel like everything that you see in skyfall is they mean it (laughs) you know um but i mean particularly the end explosion right to compare like for like they're blowing up uh skyfall lodge their bond is you feel the heat from it don't you you can feel it yeah and it's 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 his childhood it's his past that he's putting to rest it sort of all has meaning and i think that's something in in skyfall that we sort of perhaps lose um yeah in the subsequent films but yeah and can i I play on that for Mm. for my comment because when you talk about things having meaning and i i know ben has touched on this a little bit but you know color has meaning in this you know the union jack colors are there the color blue you have filters um you know when em is in her office uh, trying to um, oversee the operation or when she's writing Bond's obituary, the color blue predominates. It's the filter that's used. It's part of the image when you have half of Bond's face on screen. Uh, it's the clothing for all of the internal and loyal MI6 agents with the exception of Q, who wears a lot of brown. Um, uh, you have the images, the digital images that we see uh, when Q's looking on screen, it's blue. And then, of course, red is used for being the heart of London through the transit system, which brings me to red, which is um, associated with, you know, love such as maternal love, national love, blood and sacrifice. You have the combination of these elements. So actual Union Jacks that are, as you say, peppered throughout. But the colors are there as well to really represent MI6 and and loyal connections to MI6. And just when we, we talk about underappreciated elements along with, you know, just costuming um, that really has an impact. By the way, at the end, Bond's wearing a blue suit. Money Perry's wearing a blue, blue dress. Like, it's there. Um, M is wearing blue sweater at one point. Anyways, it's there. I, I'm just like, there's so much blue. Um, 
but the 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 fight in the tower uh, that takes place in Shanghai, just the, the the way that it's shot, the use of um, reflective surfaces, whether he's at the hotel bar, whether he's swimming, um, th- these are like high, highly um, saturated colors. But I loved all the glass work when he was going, was it Patrice? Am I yeah. getting the person? Yeah. Oh, I can't believe I got that right. So when he's going in and, and looking for Patrice, you have all of the reflective images, right? And they're they're trying to play up here with sort of the modern and modernized elements it's taking place, say, in China, Shanghai. There's a lot of notions here that's being that are being touched on about hacking, for instance, and in previous hacking attempts of, say, uh, China, Chinese government on on other places, right? So it's sort of these hyper modernized images. And then, of course, the fight that takes place um, when they are fighting, they shoot out the glass and then you actually get to see it. And it's basically it reminds me of like a Kill Bill style fight sequence um, where the fight takes place in shadow and silhouette. And so, I mean, when you talk about like a typical Bond archetype, like the the silhouetted Bond, we actually get that representation on screen during the fight. And you see these moments that are being punctuated by the shots from the, the, the rifle that actually like illuminate their faces and then you have in the background you have the squid in the background um uh, moving around and I, I for some reason i've done this research before i don't remember what the squid stands for but somehow i was able to connect that to like digital life and digital culture um and it's just this stunning visual that is taking place that i just sat there being like holy crap this is gorgeous very kill bill-esque pulling on all of these other notions and it creates a very stunning fight sequence that is memorable and so then it sort of pivots into the next phase. But I I really loved the scenes and the way that they were shot to represent Shanghai stylistically. But the fight sequence itself just really was an elevation up for me, really showing two men, bodies in motions, two assassins fighting it out, but utilizing this stylized way to really reference this iconic silhouetted history for James Bond. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just a, a fun bit of trivia um, on the um, that that glass roof sort of mm-hmm. uh, set. Apparently, it was so um, uh, very confusing for the crew. Everyone kept b- bumping into the glass when they were filming <laughs> on there because they couldn't tell what was glass and what wasn't. Uh, so, was um, some poor guy's job to go and Windex that whole thing. Right? Oh my <laughs> god, just the worst. And then when you got to one end, you had to come back right. again. <laughs> start again you just mm-hmm. keep walking back and forward and putting handprints on things yeah ben you mentioned production design right and appreciate yeah. the element to this um i want to give a shout out to one particular bit of cgi because there's some <laughs> bad cgi in here including you know um silver's face when he's like cyanide <laughs> and then you know he does that whole thing yeah. that's terrible the whole gloves debacle right whether that's true or not I, you know it'd be 20 years from now we'll be arguing about it but after seeing the press screening and then having beers with people at the premiere before they went in i tell everybody like watch out for the cgi dinosaurs they're brilliant and everyone's like piss off james there's no cgi dinosaurs in skyfall and there they are komodo dragons and yep. they hold up today they've they did such a great job on those. Um, it could have easily looked crap. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing that stands up out of all the CGI work in the film. I think the Komodo dragons are great and I love them. They, they, yeah, they kind of blew their, blew their budget on the, on the dragons though, or, or they, or their, their contingency money went on the gloves. I don't know. Cause, <laughs> um, yeah, silver's face really just didn't, uh, 
um, and no pun intended, hold up. Oh, right. gosh. And totally <laughs> unnecessary as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's like, I, well, we don't hate this guy enough already, so let's give him a physical deformity. Yeah. You know? I, 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 well, Lisa will agree with me on this. This is just yes. something uh, I, um, uh, in all of the Bond films, whenever they it, – it should be a point now where we don't lean into physical deformities as, as being, you know, bad or, or symbolic of, of uh, evil in some way. It's, uh, it's really not particularly uh, nice. <laughs> Well, the, and it, you know, it's it's not even just physical deformities. It's the heightened um, – I'm writing something right now dealing with ableism and looking at specifically scarf, scarification, but just this notion of facial differences. And, like, this is something that was there, – there's moments that are peppered in throughout the world of Bond when it comes specifically to the representation of the face. I think Blofeld in, mm-hmm. oh, 1967, you know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, um, that's – Yes, that iteration, that's what you see. But it's not necessarily the most common trope until you hit the 90s. And in the 90s, that's when from Alec Trevelyan onward, you've got Renard, you've got Zhao, you've got Le Chiffre. Um, Mm -hmm. I can talk about the scars on Bond and Camille Montez. So that's a whole other conversation there. Um, You have the two, you have uh, Blofeld, you have three villains in No Time to Die, which to me is just calls were going out before then. I don't know who is reviewing these scripts and thinking this is a good idea. But for me, that's an atrocity. It's so egregious Mm. in No Time to Die. And then when you think about this one, they didn't have to go there. They didn't have to show no, this, totally but instead, yeah, they used horror motifs, right? Like when you talk about the stigma associated with facial differences, they used horror music and you see Bond and, and M like shocked about it and it's terrible CGI, but none of this was necessary. It was supposed to be this external manifestation of the internal scarring that also happened from the cyanide. And this is supposed to be, you know, he was burned on the inside and that's how he became evil. I, I like and, to and this, think of them reacting to the CGI. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not that great, but it's just, it's a question of why is this necessary? Why is this necessary in 2012? Why do we have to include this as a way to prop up the world of James Bond or to vilify these men when at the end of the day, Silva was villainous enough? Like, you know what I mean? Yep. Who he was, what he was doing, his his intention, his backstory, all of that is enough. And I think, and I know this is supposed to be a positive podcast, but at the end of the day, I think the use of disability um, in its depiction, specifically for villains, is lazy. Yeah. It's a stereotype. It's easy. It's lazy. But the problem is, is that it disproportionately impacts those people with facial differences. Mm-hmm. They have to deal with the further stigmatization because it's something that they can't hide. It's something that impacts them on social levels, economic levels, cultural yeah. levels. And it's one of those things where it, it it was not necessary. If you were to cut that little portion out, it would still be a solid film and none of us would be blinking an eye. Yeah. A couple of things about this. There were charities um, for people with disfigures, disfigurements um, campaigning against the producers not to do this again. And then they just kept doing it. Yeah, yep. the next two films. Um, the other thing is, if you think about it, Silver tried to kill himself. Yep. Right. What? Why do we need that in there? Yep. I mean, I th- think- he's almost there. It's like he's disgruntled that he's still alive at that point. I I like to think of all of Skyfall as the death revenge scenario that is going on in Silver's dying mind 
as he dies from cyanide poisoning. <laughs> you know, he's like, I'll get you for this. Um. And as he's dying, all the, that's why none of the, the plot makes sense. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just a fever dream while he's dying. Yeah, it's just him, his fever dream as he passes. And he's like, yeah, and I'll be in the, I'll be in this chamber, and then one of the doors will just open, and I'll that's, and I'll have set up a bomb, and then some guy will give me some cop clothes, and and the, and the London tubes won't be on strike, and they won't be on strike, <laughs> and an empty train will just come through the hole at the right, exactly the right time. I'll have chased him exactly <laughs> the right distance. I've been chased exactly the right distance through the tunnel that I can right. figure out where the train is going to crash through if I press it at this time. Yeah, I wonder just to just to uh, just to play devil's advocate here in in terms of the scarring with um, uh, Silver is uh, I think something that Sam Mendes talks a lot about is, is sort of being in thrall of Christopher Nolan and and the Dark Knight movies um, and this film you know you could say Casino Royale was a direct consequence of Batman Begins or at least the direction mm-hmm. they took with it this movie is is almost their response to The Dark Knight which had come out a few years before you know there's a lot of parallels in it um and I think uh, almost Sam Mendes is trying to set up Silver to be his Joker um right. and you know that Joker in in that film has the physical scarring on his face and it's all part of his trauma his personal trauma and so it kind of maybe he just made those connections and, and went for it. Not that I'm saying it's the right thing to do. It's obviously a dreadful thing and they should not have done it and cutting it. But that's almost, I feel like possibly a, the justification or, or at least an explanation yeah. for why they went in that direction. Well, he had, so can- yeah, but he also, you know, even before then back in like road to perdition, didn't he have um, Jude Law playing a disfigured hitman mm. and, wasn't you know like there, there's there's more than kind of one example from him of of you know using disfigurement to be kind of represented. Let's be honest, it's the same producers, and they do it in every film. So <laughs> yeah. I, I'd lay the blame at the producers, not so much Mendes. But and then I mean, it raises the question just to fully flesh out this idea. This is what happens when people who are not disabled are creators and have power over the narratives of how disability is represented. Yeah. That really, at the end of the day, is is where the problem lies. And yes, we have producers. Yes, we have directors. We also have the same script writing team um, that seems to be doing all of these things um, over and over and over again, regardless of what public sentiments are, regardless of what charities are saying, the different movements that have been out there, the BFI being out there. It's the same thing over and over and over again. And this is the reason why I've advocated for diversity in terms of the script writing for the world of Bond, Um, not people coming in at the tail end, but really having thoughtful conversations and meaningful conversations. Um, And it's hard because my frustration is that people with disabilities always have to advocate for themselves. There isn't this immense support the way that other social justice movements have had. And I would love for them to be able to reach out. There are organizations out there that deal with creative media um, and, and representations and just go have your script review, have those conversations beforehand because it makes a well, world of a difference. You do it with a CIA to make sure there's nothing in there that CIA don't like. So exactly. why, not just ex- why not just expand that remit mm, yeah, to some other groups? use those organizations rather than going to individual people because it's not really their job to educate you on how to not be ableist 
right? And how to be a responsible creator. That's not their job. People, these are their lived realities. They, they're not responsible for educating everyone. But we do have organizations uh, that do review scripts, that do consulting. Go and pass your script by them. Go, go have your basic ideas, your storyboards, and just make sure that this phase that culminates in no time to die, we can put put an end to it because it's so problematic. And I'm glad we have the opportunity to talk about this because it's something that really needs to stop. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, let's wrap this up with trivia. Is there a little, uh, obviously there's such a well-documented film given that it made a yeah. billion dollars, but is there anything that's like personal, that personally tickles you? Um, some trivia about this film? Or something that people should watch out for next time they see it on ITV4? <laughs> I've got one. It's kind of <laughs> stupid. But uh, obviously a large portion of the film takes pl place on the tube, uh, London tube. And before you try it, you can't slide down the middle of the escalators no. because <laughs> there are barriers that will stop you. And if you Google, uh, if you look on YouTube for people sliding down the middle section, you'll see people really hurting themselves. So oh my gosh. don't do it because <laughs> they don't exist like that. So that's my fun bit of trivia. Um, they must have taken out the barriers down the middle to allow them to do it. So don't. I'm uh, surprised that there wasn't like a whole bunch of commuters just beating silver over the head with like whatever bags <laughs> or umbrella. Like you just you stand on the you stand on the right and you well. <laughs> they, they, Q, they, there's a quit there's a, a, a back and forth between bond and q and bond's like oh complain about how busy it is and like oh this is rush hour and it's like that is yeah. like that is not rush hour <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it. anybody no. who has, has waited for six tubes to go by before you can even get, <laughs> get in get onto the platform exactly yeah, so yeah. walking between the carriages like they do oh yeah, yeah of course yeah not so much. Do you find the, the difficulty? Because I find that sometimes when these are, are the things that are there, I find it difficult to suspend my disbelief. So I, I don't do a lot of commuting on the tube because there's no tubes in Hamilton, Ontario, mm. Canada. Um, but do you find that like moments that are just part of your lived experience, daily experience, you look and you're like, I'm supposed to, you know, believe in this guy with a license to kill, sure, and that he can do all these like amazing things, fine, and that he, you know, rarely ever dies, fine. Like, there's all things that are so like fantastic or outlandish that we that we suspend our disbelief, and then we see a scene like this, and we're like, this yeah. is not it's real. Like Silver didn't yeah. have his oyster card with him. You know? I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. To, to answer that, um, Lisa, there, are, I lived in London for quite a long time, um, and I. I know so many of these locations in, in Skyfall so well that um, a lot of them don't track. And, the, you know, the, the entrance to the new MI6 is just a loading dock. And, mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've seen that so many times. And, um, yeah, I just I think it's one of the, th the things that kind of makes me feel like this is a very – uh, this isn't supposed to be set in our universe. That's what it makes me feel. <laughs> and then when we subsequently get in respect of the, the actual collapse of the building, right? Um, like the MI6 building, well, that's in Scott. Uh, you no, know that, you know, but the actual kind of destruction, yeah. it, right? That makes me really understand that it is not our universe, right? It's, it's something else. And yeah. I think S Skyfall kind of sets the, ball in motion for that for me because i can't 
I can't see it as set in world, so to speak. You know, not in our world. It's it's like it's all taking place in a a universe just to the left. Yeah, there's a, a famous, uh, I say semi-famous scene in Thor: The Dark World where um, Thor gets on a tube train uh, at Charing Cross and he wants to get to Greenwich and they say, oh, it's three stops this way. And everyone who's been to London and been on the tube was howling at the screen at that. So um, there are worse examples of uh, public transport. But um, yeah, there's something about putting Bond into the mundane that makes you question the reality of it a bit more, I think, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was the, 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 the juxtaposition they were going for, wasn't it? To say, oh, look, you know, it's Bond on the tube. But if you're going to do that, you kind of have to do it properly, I suppose. Yeah, and the fact they can use a radio underground right. and communicate <laughs> with Q is, uh, is something in itself. Right. Um, we this. Well, ben. I was just going to say, I just wanted to, I, I know that we've, we've had a little bit of sort of negativity about, about this film, but I just wanted to bring it back to really just saying quickly how enjoyable it actually is. And even though it has a lot of things wrong with it <laughs> it, it is a very enjoyable film um and well that goes back to the whole peter hunt argument of like well if if after you've enjoyed it later you go like hang on a minute well that's yeah that's fine because you enjoyed the ride during during the ride exactly that and um i i, I think that that's kind of where i where i feel with this film now um so many it should years. be like james one will return brett parentheses don't think about it too much yes yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah i i don't know I, like when i first saw this film uh when we came out of the, the cinema um you know the, the the screening and like there was a lot of people who were very involved in the bond community uh inverted commas um with us um and you know the reaction really was like we didn't really like it but it, we knew that it was going to make a huge amount of money and everyone else would like it, I think was the sort of the consensus. But now... And that's the people they make them for. That's the people they make for. But, but yeah, exactly. And But now I really feel like if I watch this film again, I, I'm less critical, I'm less analytical of it. I'm far more likely to just sit down and enjoy it for the spectacle that it is. Um, and I think... This having had a few years of distance on it now, it 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 kind of yeah, it breathes better. Um, so yeah, I think it's. But isn't that the case of all Bond movies that we enjoy? Yeah, a decade or two later, it's like well, we know the plot, we know the script, right? So we we mm. just sit back and watch it for the cinematography or the locations or the performances or whatever. We don't care about the plot holes, right? After a certain number of viewings, mm. Is that fair? No, I, yeah, I don't, and I and as I say. It it isn't if you don't take it as supposed to be really in a in a fully real world, then it shouldn't really matter. You know, if it was a you know if it was a film that was literally telling you that this is events that are happening in this universe right now, it's always just slightly skewed to fantasy, obviously. Yeah, and so therefore, I think you can allow a lot of those things. like Bond's disguise, for example. That's you know, like when he's when he's pretending to be a chauffeur. That's just patently bonkers. Right. Do you think he's just going to wash up, wake up on the banks of the Bosphorus, and the last two and a half movies were just his? 
that's the other thing I don't, the only thing I don't really like about this film is that it kind of suggests that you've missed the best films, right? Um, right. The, the, like Bond's now washed up. He's had all of these other adventures. He's been, tra he's training agents or whatever he's doing, or, you know, at least leading missions. And you're like, why didn't we get to where, why haven't we seen any of this stuff between Quantum of Solace and now? <laughs> That's what we want to see. And it just feels like we've already got to Fiori's only, you know, like it feels like Roger Moore's Fiori's only kind of like, you're too old to be this agent and, you know, maybe yeah, we, we missed the spy love me and moonraker yeah 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 you, you just feel you just yeah exactly you feel like you've missed two really good movies <laughs> and I, i'd like to see them um should we go to top middle or bottom as we're on the hour um mm -hmm. there are no bad bond there are no bad bond movies but there are some we watch more than others um so who would like to put this in their top tier middle tier or lower tier I am going to say this for me is top tier Bond. Um, <laughs> and I saw it, you know, 2012, um, a preview screening, and I loved it then. I saw it several times at the cinema then. I've seen it at the um, Albert Hall with a live orchestra, which was great. Um, and I, I enjoy it every time I watch it. I see the flaws within it. I see that the plotting is uh, is, is a bit crazy from the middle point people make stupid decisions and you know the film has to deal with that but uh as i said right at the top of the show it's a it was a prestige adventure and, and that doesn't always work out best for bond you know they've tried different things in the past and they don't always work out but i think on this occasion i think they mm -hmm. made they set out to make a great movie and it all came together um their backs were again a little bit against the wall and for me it, it, it in that sense James, you, you mentioned Goldeneye, and I think that's another right. film to sort of compare it to in, in a Bond film where they were limited by what they could do, and therefore the film that we got um, was ended up being a leaner, meaner sort of yeah. um, experience. And so for me, for that reason, it, it's top tier. It's not my favourite James Bond film of all time. It's it's probably not even it, – it's probably creeping top five, but, um, yeah, top tier, put my flag in the sand. A Union Jack in the sand. Lisa, what do you think? Um, <laughs> probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I think that there's a lot of good things with this movie, but there's a lot of problems. Um, I remember when it came out, I didn't see it right away. Um, that year I was, I had moved to Oklahoma. I was busy doing work and I knew that if I saw this movie deep down inside, something was like, I was going to develop my bond course the following semester. I knew that this was going to happen. I'd have to watch it before I actually taught it. Um, that, that kind of helps when you're a professor. Uh, but I just knew that there was something in it and I was going to react and respond. And when I saw the representation of women, everything inside of me just like was shaken to the core and from the representation of money penny as a defunct agent severine to me is one of the most disempowered women mm. ever on screen in the bond franchise um someone who has a history um of sex work and to see the scene of bond walking in on her in the shower after she's just explained what she's gone through it did not hit me well. And then, of course, Judy Dench's M, while it's the one where Judy Dench dies, um, 
you know, having her die in the way that she did without even being able to, to, to do anything, just sort of being there, standing there and just being this figurehead. Um, all of those three things together did not sit right with me. And we've already talked about the, the, the representation of, of, um, facial differences in this as well. And it's very difficult for me to, to watch this film and not react and respond in that way. So as a woman seeing these representations, I just have that, that, that response. I can't turn it off when I watch content. And it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy stuff because I do when there's problematic content, you know, show, tell me what you like and I can tell you what's wrong with it. I still watch a ton of media. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's one of those things where the legacy of Bond was really built on the backs of women in this film, women of color in this film, um, women who were older in this film, and seeing Bond come out at the end and knowing just the the way that things were and 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 the office, the like the 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 field isn't for everyone, and a whole bunch of these other quotes that came out, and it's just it just has that like mm, part to me where I just can't put it in my top, right. Um, because it's so in my face. That being said, I think that there are a lot of beautiful things about this film. Um, I think that the it's the best shot Bond film. I think it's edited beautifully. I think the actors themselves did incredibly well playing and embodying these characters. There's nobody that I'm sitting there being like, yeah, this was poorly acted or I don't get it, right? I don't know if you can say that with every Bond film that you've seen. Um, I like the fact that we see an expansion of Bond's internal network. I like the difference in masculinities, the differences in age. You know, there's a lot in this film that's really, really good. But for me, it's this one other element that I just can't overlook. And so that's why I'm going to put it in the middle tier because of that fact. And no matter how many times I watch mm -hmm. it or how many years go on, I'm still probably probably going to react in the same way to, to, yeah. to the representation of women. Um, ben, because I know we've had an uh, oh, well, interesting relationship with this film. So. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, i I just like to echo some of um, Lisa's sentiments um, but as I say, I'll keep it brief. But yeah, I I think that the um, the, the treatment of, of, of women in this film is is really always going to be an aspect that just forever kind of going to be a black mark on it, really. And mm -hmm. it, it it is, as I've said, an entertaining film, um, and I can enjoy it, and I do enjoy it, um, and I enjoy it for a lot of things other than that um but that is an aspect of it and i think because of that and because as lisa just said you know there isn't really any like there wasn't it was almost like it took a step back well it did take a step backward it didn't wasn't mm -hmm. like it took a step back. it actually did take a step backward and when you're when you're um purporting to be a, a, an advocate <laughs> um it just doesn't sit particularly well. And um, it, it, it is a low point. The shower sequence is a low point for me in the, in the series, as is Bond and, you know, uh, Monica Bellucci's character. Um, yes. Yeah. Those two moments are very low points for me in, in the series, not just because of what they uh, represent, what they are. It's because we should know better at this point. There is no defense of it. And I think that's all for me, that's always going to kind of like mar it slightly, but on the, 
yeah, on the whole, I like I do like the film, and it is. Um, I'd say it's kind of uh, a very beautiful looking film, as I've said. Um, for for all of the good good reasons, it does sort of sit in the middle for me. So, if you listen to this in mid September, Skyfall's back out in cinemas um, the weekend before the Queen's funeral on Monday. So, if you go see this um, in the uh, on the big screen, do let us know the atmosphere of the screening if it's any different in the UK, and uh, if anybody's got emotional at the end, or if you know people are waving bunting like it's the last night of the proms um, <laughs> and everything in between. <laughs> Um, <laughs> drop us a line contact at James Bond and friends and we'd love to know um, from everybody across the country what the reception to this film is going to be and they so go on that, Monday because they're closed <laughs> yes yes so go on the weekend um, and next week we'll be back for Spectre so for that I would like to thank Ben, Lisa and Tom and we'll see you next week thank you bye, bye.